The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. All right, so this morning, I realized that we had Easter last week. I really wish I was at the Easter service. It seems like it was incredibly unique and special. Uh, I've been hearing some great, great things about it. Um, but I know last week was Easter, but we're going to go back to the last week of Jesus' life in order to go forward. So our passage this morning is from John chapter 16. It'll be on the screens, and I will read it for us. I'm going to read John 16, verses 4 through 15. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All right, so to unpack this this morning, two very, very simple points. Number one is what Jesus says, which is, I am going away. And then number two is, I am not going away. So I am going away, and I am not going away. So Jesus is nearing the end of his life. And what he's doing is he's preparing his closest followers for his death. That's what's going on in this passage, is that he's preparing his closest followers for his death. And yet Jesus lets us into something really, really unique here. And it's in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? So Jesus, as he's preparing his followers for his death, lets his followers in to say, hey, in your grief, and in all the ways you're being consumed by that, no one's thinking about me. No one's asking me, where are you going? No one's concerned about my relocation to glory, to go sit at the right hand of the Father, because we're so concerned with grief. Now, it's very, very rare that someone at the end of their life has the privilege to talk to those who are closest to them, right, to prepare them for their death. Uh, We hope this is a moment that Jason and his mom may be having at, at some point, but it's very, very rare that people have that moment, and yet Jesus is having that moment. And what he's saying is, none of you are asking me, where am I going? None of you are asking me that I'm going to take possession of glory. So a commentator says this, He says, Jesus' disappointment in the disciples' lack of interest in where might be alike to how little we ask for Jesus' return, how little interest we show. 
So the question we have right off the bat this morning is, how much interest do we have in Jesus' return? How actively are we thinking about the Christ who will come again and will make all things new? And if we're not actively thinking about it, why? Right? What is keeping us from being focused on Jesus' return to come again and to make all things new? Well, maybe one thing that might be keeping us, I know it's keeping me often, is that we, we talk so little about heaven because we talk so little about suffering. We see suffering as something that we want to do away with, that we want to be done with right now. Like we want to, we want to put that in our past. We no longer want to have to deal with that. But Paul himself, he says this, he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. So what Paul is saying to each one of us, he's saying, if you want to taste the glory, glory and joy of heaven that you long for, you first have to experience suffering. You first have to experience suffering because in suffering, you begin to long. You begin to hunger. You begin to be with Jesus and hungering and thirsting for the glory that is to come. There's a lot of things that can numb us from thinking about heaven. Uh, maybe it's our riches, our possessions, our abundance. Uh, I don't know what it is for you. It could be any number of things. But there is an African Christian leader who, when he looks at America, he says this. He says, where is your talk of heaven? Where is your talk of the new earth? Have you all grown comfortable here? So it's good for us to really think about and be introspective and wonder, do we actually actively long for heaven? Are we thinking about heaven? Or have we grown comfortable here? Have we built our kingdom so much here on earth? See, Jesus' disciples in this passage are having to reconcile with the idea that Jesus is going away and he's going to die. And in that suffering, what they want to do is they want to keep Jesus there, right? They don't want him to go away. They want to be with him. They want to continue to walk with him and be with him. And I think that is a desire that a lot of us have. The desire, right, we often feel like if I was just back with Jesus, if I was just walking with him, spending time with him, if I lived back in that time of the Bible, you know, then I would believe so much more. Then my faith would be increased. If I could just see him, if I could have just been there with him, it's the power of nostalgia, the power of going back to something in the past to try to find glory and to remain there and get back and back to it. His disciples are caught in that trap to stay in the past. They do not want Jesus to go away. And yet what Jesus is reminding them and reminding us this morning is that your future is always going to be brighter than whatever was bright in your past. Because Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all things new. We don't know when, but Jesus himself has taken possession of glory and he's going to return and make all things new. Whatever happens in the future will always be greater than what happens in the past. And yet, his disciples are sad. They're sad because they're dealing with the reality of his death and his going away. And so Jesus deals with this sadness by going to our second point. And he says this. He says, I am not going away. So Jesus starts to talk about the Holy Spirit because his followers are going to have to imagine a life of being without Jesus physically and yet being with him spiritually. Imagine a life of being without him physically and yet being with him 
spiritually. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is the one who comes and unites us to Jesus. Okay, so I think a lot of times we, we hear this part of the passage like the disciples did, right? So they heard this kind of passage uh, in this kind of way. They heard it as a kid who was at the dinner table and they're eating their favorite chips or french fries or buttered noodles, whatever it was, something that's kind of low in nutritional value, but delicious, right? And they're eating it and then the mom or the dad takes it away and puts, you know, some broccoli or some asparagus on the plate, something green, right? And says, here, eat this. It's delicious, right? And the kid is trying to, you know, continue to eat the chips or the the french fries or whatever it is, won't have anything to do with the broccoli because it seems like in comparison that this could not possibly be anything as good as this, right? And I think that's how the disciples are hearing this passage. So for me, when I grew up in in Chicago, um, one of the greatest things about that was Michael Jordan. So it was the 90s, Michael Jordan was on top of the world, and Michael Jordan, uh, as a way to make more money than he already had, had people running this Michael Jordan basketball camp, okay? So Michael Jordan basketball camp is like every sports camp, It's where you have a week and you run through these different drills, you play basketball, and maybe, just maybe, if you're lucky, Michael Jordan will show up, right? Like the weeks where Michael Jordan shows up, those are the good weeks. So we're at this camp and and Michael Jordan actually does show up one of the days. And he's there, he's dunking, he's playing basketball. In reality, he's there for about five minutes. And yet he sits there, you get to talk to him, you get to interact with him, and then he goes away. And the rest of the experience, you're just kind of left with his people and other people. And I think that is how we hear this passage of like we get five minutes, you know, being with Jesus. And then the rest of it is just kind of like, eh, you know, whatever. We just kind of wait for him to return again. And in this passage, Jesus is defeating that argument. And he is basically saying, to use the analogy, I am going away. But it's like you're going to have my abilities, my power, my character, and my presence in you. Right? It was one thing to play basketball around Michael Jordan, but imagine if Michael Jordan looked at me and said, hey, I'm going to fill all of my talent in you. You're going to become living in my power. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, I am physically going away, but I'm not going away spiritually. It's better for you to have me in you rather than have me around you. It's better to have me in you than to have me around you. Because the Holy Spirit himself... Jesus says, is God. The Holy Spirit is not some cheap substitute. The Holy Spirit, Jesus uh, believes, is God. And so if we treat him any less, we're treating Jesus less. We're treating the Father less because the Spirit is the means by which we behold Jesus and the Father. One person says about the Holy Spirit that there's no person in the world who's ever been so misunderstood than the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Maybe that's because of all the kind of weird things that we've seen. Um, But there's an equal and opposite error, and that's to never talk about the Holy Spirit, to never engage with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, we are left with in this passage these words, it's better that I go away so that the Holy Spirit may come. Jesus is a high view of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does is invites us to be with God, invites us to be with the Trinity, He invites us to be in the family business with Jesus. He includes us with us. And this passage says that he's going to do three things. Number one, it says that he is going to reveal our sin. 
So the first thing the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth does is reveals our sin. Over and over. The Holy Spirit didn't just do this once when he saved you if you're a Christian already. The Holy Spirit continues to convict us of our sin. Martin did an amazing job this morning reminding us that the greatest sin is not necessarily other people's, it's ours as well. Right? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The second thing the Holy Spirit does is it convinces us of Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' beauty, Jesus' glory, Jesus' majesty. The, Jesus grows bigger and bigger in our hearts. And then the third thing it says the Holy Spirit does is that it locates the victory of Jesus and says the ruler of the world is judged. So the Holy Spirit convinces us and reminds us of who really is king, who really is ruling and reigning. And the church is to receive the truth of Jesus by this Holy Spirit. So what are two ways that we can see the indwelling presence of the Spirit? What are two ways that we can walk by the power of the Holy Spirit? Uh, Number one, I think, is this. It says over and over in this passage, it says, He will declare... He will speak, okay? So what does it sound like? What does the Holy Spirit sound like? What is it like to listen to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit sounds like Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit sounds like the Father. The Holy Spirit sounds like Scripture. I mean, there are multiple passages in the Bible where other biblical verses are being quoted, and it says, the Holy Spirit said this. The Holy Spirit himself has spoken to us through his word. So if we want to know what he sounds like, we look to the Bible. I love this quote. A wise person said this. They said, Christians read the Bible not as a document from history, but as a world into which they enter so that God may meet them there. Are you reading the Bible to meet with God? Are you opening up your Bible believing that you might actually meet with God there? Statistics say that 78% of Americans own a Bible, but only 9% read it regularly. George Gallup Jr., a pollster, he said this. He said, we revere the Bible, but we don't read it. It's the best-selling, least-read book in America. It's the best-selling, least-read book in America. And we might be like, yeah, you know, all those other people need to read the Bible, you know, and, and, and kind of thinking that that's something that needs to go out. But What I'm trying to say is what one pastor says, and he says this. He says, I'm ashamed to admit how often I've dipped into Scripture casually, unwilling to search, to linger, to hunt for the pearl of great price hidden within its text. And this I suspect because I don't always expect to find anything precious in there. I can't tell you how many times I just casually read the Bible and don't really expect that much out of it because I've read it so many times, right? And I would venture to guess that some of you feel the same way. You've been around the Bible. You've heard the Bible. You've been told to love the Bible. You like the Bible. You have a Bible. You have 12 Bibles. Bible, 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 right? But we don't really expect to find much in there. We've been inoculated. We've received a little bit of it, and we chase the rest of it away. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens ourselves to hear from him, to hunger for him. So are we expecting to meet God when we open up our Bibles to linger with the Holy Spirit? Are we doing that? The second thing is that the Holy Spirit will lead us to say yes to some thoughtful, faith-filled risks. The Holy Spirit leads us to say yes to some thoughtful, faith-filled risks to be 
with Jesus. Faith is not being able to control God, right, and be safe. Faith is the willingness to follow God wherever he may lead us because he is a person and he is alive. He's not an idea that we can easily organize. He is a person who is ruling and reigning, who is active right now. If you look at all of the disciples who were terrified, just like we were, the Holy Spirit filled them and they were willing to take these risks. And the risks drove them into community. The risk drove them to love and care for their neighbor. So I don't know exactly what scripts you're encouraged to live into in your family and in your culture. I don't know what the dominating uh, ways are for you to live in, but are you open to considering living off script? It might be from the Holy Spirit. Are you considering to follow Jesus and imagine him in a way that goes beyond your family, your church, or your own fears? What would you do if you weren't afraid? What's the next thing you'd do to follow Jesus? I know that's risky. I know it's vulnerable, but Jesus reminds us in this passage that the Holy Spirit is the helper. We, I think, have this idea that if we trust the Holy Spirit, he's going to do like these wild things, you know? Well, the Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the advocator. The Holy Spirit is the one who says to you, do not fear. He's not the one putting more fear on your life. He's not trying to drive you into crazy places. He's the one trying to comfort you with the comfort of Jesus. So is our life inspired by the Holy Spirit? How are we living out all of our beautiful theology that we believe? I think this is an inspiring quote before we close with the story. One church leader says this. He says, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty, because it has been out on the streets, rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. I do not want a church concerned with being at the center and which then ends up being caught up in a web of obsessions and procedures. If something should rightly disturb us and trouble our consciences, it is the fact that so many of our brothers and sisters are living without the strength, light, and consolation born of friendship with Jesus Christ, without a community of faith to support them, without meaning and a goal in life. Listen to this. He says, More than by fear of going astray, my hope is that we will be moved by the fear of remaining shut up within structures which give us a false sense of security, within rules which make us harsh judges, within habits which make us feel safe. While at our door, people are starving, and Jesus does not tire of saying to us, give them something to eat. How is the Holy Spirit leading you to love and care for your neighbor? It might be beyond safety. We often have an idol of safety, and the Holy Spirit wants to give us real safety and comfort, and that comes through risk. So let me close with the story. Once upon a time, there was a man and a woman, and they were very, very wealthy, and they were the kind of family that enjoyed throwing parties when they bought new homes. I don't know. Sounds cool. And so what happens is they had this amazing party, right, where they had the best food, they had the best drinks, and they went all out on it. They even ordered flowers for this party. And when they arrived at the party, they noticed something that was a little off. By the massive flower bouquet, there was this sign on the bouquet that said, I'm so sorry for your loss. <laughs> so they were pretty mad. They were upset. They were confused. You know, why is this sign on here? And at that same hour, at that same time, across town, there was a funeral. And at that funeral, there were flowers. 
from the same bouquet, from the same place. And when the family of the deceased arrived at the funeral, there was a sign on the flowers that said this. It said, congratulations on your relocation. (laughs) The floral company had accidentally mixed up the signs and sent them to the wrong place. And so the family of the deceased, after their initial shock and horror and outrage, they took a second, they thought about it, and they said these words. They said, there are no better words for our loved one, for she belonged to Jesus And she is relocated with him face-to-face in heaven. You see, if you're a Christian, because not only what Jesus said here, but what Jesus did and because of the power of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says, I am going away, we need to say to him, congratulations on your relocation. Congratulations on your relocation to glory. And when our time comes here on earth, comes to an end when we die, At the same time, God says that we will live. We will be relocated. And in a very real way, we are not going away, just like Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit say so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you for the ways in which you have borne your church, always through suffering and through sorrow and It's absolutely amazing uh, the things we see in the scripture of of how willing people were to to be for you and to be with you. And Lord, we also see in the scripture people who are afraid and who get it wrong. And and so, Lord, we're comforted and reminded of your presence among us in our highs and our lows. Lord, we're thankful for the ways in which you, Jesus, have been relocated to glory. And what that means for us, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us. So Lord, convict us of our sin. Convince us more and more of your righteousness. And remind us that you are the true King. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.